Well, hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. The attack on our capital made things extremely clear yesterday. We have to restore reality or we are going to lose everything. There were some pretty strong statements from Republicans, of all people, about how Trump's lies and misinformation, disinformation, incited this insurrection. That's true, and he must be held to account for his dereliction of duty and abuse of power. But there is more here, and we need to face it squarely. Or Corrin is a professor at Indiana University and an expert on political violence. Let me read you a bit of what he said in this interview yesterday with The Conversation. I quote, what hugely contributed to all of this misinformation, people mobilized based on a conspiracy theory with no evidence. I think this is a major problem and that has to be addressed. I don't know how, but it is really crucial to address this underlying problem that people believe in what they feel is real, not what is real. You could really hear this corrosive alternate, alternative reality at work yesterday. Check out these interviews by British television with the rioters inside of the Capitol. Let's play that clip real quick. Hill police officers, this was a losing battle. This is exactly what was feared, but in no way is this a surprise. It has been fueled by the president's rhetoric, and it's increasingly clear this election has not healed the wounds. It has simply amplified them. We followed the aggrieved and infuriated Trump supporters as they stormed the building. Through broken windows and doors they had forced open. And for a few heady moments they felt they had won a precious victory. of the Congressional Building. What's the purpose of storming Congress itself? Because they work for us. They don't get to steal it from us. They don't get to tell us we didn't see what we saw. We respect the law. We were good people. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens, and you guys did this to us. We want our country back. We are protesting for our freedom right now. That's the difference. What's the purpose of storming Congress? How do I know that? These people believe in what they feel is real, not what is real. They believe so thoroughly in a complete fraud that they ransacked the Capitol and set off confrontations that left four people dead. Professor Corrin says he usually sees this kind of political violence in countries that don't have institutions for resolving election disputes. In this case, we do have strong institutions, but Trump and his cronies attacked them, declared war on them, ripped away at them, fired folks whenever they could. Professor Corrin warns that once you engage in political violence, it becomes easier to do it again. And we saw this with Charlottesville. We saw this with the threats against the Michigan governor. And we saw it yesterday. 
But he says something else too. An effective response can help strengthen these institutions. So this is what we need, an effective response now. Shout out to Senator Markey, who unleashed a verbal manifesto on the failures of our republic and what must be done immediately to address them. Let's roll that clip of Senator Markey. Because the list of statutes that this latest shocking presidential phone call may violate is too long to recite. The president's words on that phone call, indeed, his conduct since the election demand a serious response, one much more serious than the sham before us today. First, federal and state law enforcement authorities should investigate Donald Trump for election fraud, extortion, conspiracy, and whatever other charges fit the bill, and if warranted, indict and try him for any crimes he has committed. Second, we must recognize that Donald Trump is and will remain a danger to our Constitution and our democracy. So while time is certainly limited, we should impeach Trump again and bar him from holding office in the future. And finally, we should abolish the Electoral College. It is a vestige of a racist Jim Crow America, and we have outgrown it. Every person's vote in every state should count just the same. One person, one vote. Election fraud and reform are very serious issues. Election reform absolutely should be debated in Congress, which is why instead of today's kabuki theater, I invite my Republican colleagues to stand up and say, yes, we need to protect and expand voting rights and election security. We need automatic voter registration. We need online voter registration. We need same-day voter registration. We should make Election Day a federal holiday. We should restore voting rights to people with prior felony convictions. We should support independent redistricting commissions. Let's spend our time on the floor debating that, debating how to reduce the influence of big money in our political system, to slow the revolving door between government officials and lobbyists, to stop gerrymandering and voter suppression. That's the real election reform that we should be debating and supporting, not these shameful, craven, baseless objections. More than 350,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus. That is the truth. Nearly 8 million people have fallen into poverty because of the economic crisis caused by this virus. That is the truth. Okay. Wearing a mask saves lives. That's I see six points that must be addressed now. Let's go through them point by point. Obviously, number one, obviously every insurrectionist identified as having been inside the Capitol must be prosecuted. We already know who many of these vandals were, Proud Boys and Q followers. They won't be hard to find. Folks are already doing investigative work and recognizing some from other events or skirmishes. Number two, the insiders and the enablers must be held to account. Trump is, of course, at the top of this list. Impeach him or remove him through the 25th Amendment or indict him on January 20th. Both parties in both houses should surely censure him for launching an attack on them. But remember, Trump had a lot of help. It was Giuliani who said, settle the election by combat. Number three, there are U.S. senators like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and the other political bottom feeders who played politics with this tinderbox. This has to be a limit. There has to be a limit. 
Enough is enough. If Republicans reward them for this, then we know which side they're really on. <laughs> I thought they were so, uh, they valued institutions and democracy. So Senator McConnell, Senator Romney, Senator, Senator Graham, did you really mean the words that you said in those nice speeches from the floor of the Senate yesterday? Then you can't stop there. The Senate sets the requirements for its own members, even ones who think you need a Trump coalition to win the presidency in 2024. Number four, a special mention here for the 121 Republicans in the House who voted to overturn electoral votes for Joe Biden. After their offices were stormed, windows were bashed, guns were drawn, and four people died. How can this be? I'll tell you in one word, gerrymandering. And that's why Senator Markey mentioned that. The dark conspiracy between Democrats and Republicans in state after state has come home to roost. Those safe districts are really just political filter bubbles in which the only thing constituents are kept safe from is reality. Number five, now speaking of filter bubbles, the time has come to reckon with these big tech companies. They made this possible. They facilitated, they boosted it for years. They have been monetizing anger and rage. Facebook led a group where this was planned to grow to 300,000 users before they thought, oh, maybe we should shut this down. Inciting hate. Let's just be very clear. This is not you know, taking on free speech. These are rooms where folks are organizing violence. That is not protected by free speech. And Democrats, Democrats, it is time to break up with big tech. And then we need to break up big tech. Number six, finally, we can't just call out the other side. We need to clean up our own house too, of course. I like being called a progressive because the label says what we believe. We want to make progress at improving people's lives. But you can't improve what you don't see or acknowledge. Understanding reality wherever it is, whatever it is, is an essential step to progress. Yet a number of our media voices have engaged in dangerous dancing with peddlers of fake realities. There is no excuse. From this day on, there should be no excuse. You can't any longer say you don't get how dangerous this is. You can't dance with Gavin McGinnis or, or Alex Jones on your platform or ignore Trump for four years and solely go after Democrats. Or in the lead up to this right-wing, well-organized effort, make everything about channeling the progressive movement's energy into going after the squad and anyone who called you out on your side. I'll ask after yesterday, which side are you on? All right, guys, we have a brilliant show today, if I do say so myself. We have Manuel Pastor. He is on to discuss the organizing in Georgia and how we won on the ground, what was done. Uh, he's back to, to assess that. And then later, the one and only Rep Rab is on to talk about. <laughs> it didn't just happen, by the way, at the Capitol. Uh, just the day before, this happened in a different way in the Pennsylvania Capitol. So he's going to talk about both events. Before we get to that, make sure to click that subscription button. Make sure to click like, smash that like button. Join us in the chat. Uh, let's get debatey. Uh, share us on social media. Check us out at the Nomi Key Show on, on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you have not already, please join us on Patreon because this actually takes a lot of work. 
we have a team and you know it's there are a lot of tricks we could do a lot of a lot of cheap tricks we could do uh to to make this show grow but we believe our community is smart and thoughtful and nuanced and wants to know how to build to build the progressive movement and build up progressive institutions. And so we can't do that, of course, without your support. So join us at patreon.com slash the known he show. And we are uh, in, in our book club already. Uh, we have just published our first book club interview with Professor Harvey Kay and folks should be have already received their book on Thomas Paine. We will be doing a, another interview with Professor Harvey Kay with the book club's questions. Make sure to check out our book club at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be right back with Professor Manuel Pastor. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We are thrilled to also welcome back Dr. Manuel Pastor. He's the director of the University of Southern California's Equity Research Institute. He is the author of State Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future and Equity also, equity, growth, and community, what the nation can learn from America's metro areas. John Ossoff, in the midst of, in the, midst of the chaos of the Capitol, uh, we were notified that the Democrats officially uh, took control of the Senate with the election of the calling of the election for John Ossoff, uh, senator-elect now of Georgia. And of course, earlier uh, in, in, in the very early morning, Raphael Warnock uh, was elected to the Senate, taking both Georgia Senate seats, which, you know, I think folks have been following this uh, fairly closely, especially with Stacey Abrams. Um, but this, this didn't happen overnight. And, and you know, Stacey Abrams deserves a ton of credit for this. But this was a movement that was happening on the ground in Georgia for a while. Uh, and and if, if I can editorialize here, I personally feel that if the Democratic Party were fully invested in every single community in this country, you'd quickly learn that there are a lot more states and a lot more communities that are more are blue uh, than we would have thought if we'd actually invested on the ground. And so folks decided to take it in their own hands and 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 organize at the local level. And of course, we won um, the Senate as a result. But Dr. Pastor, you predicted this 10 years ago, right? Yeah, we've been uh, studying uh, basically how it is that movement politics meet electoral politics, how it is that community-based organizations working on the ground manage to turn out a very different voter, a more progressive voter that can actually shift politics over time. In our scouting around the country, we were looking at Georgia in particular because there was so much interesting Grassroots organizing from groups like Georgia Stand Up, which is a labor community of uh, think tank and organizing group um, in Atlanta. Of course, the New Georgia Project, which was stood up by Stacey Abrams and now headed by uh, Ense Afoot. Uh, but there's just been tremendous grassroots organizing. And that, I think, has been something that the mainstream Democratic Party has completely missed. And I think it's incredibly important to realize that what happened in Georgia is it was not like Doug Jones won, a moderate Democrat. These are two of the most liberal Democrats being elected to the Senate, uh, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, who are quite progressive, will really add a progressive voice to policymaking in D.C. And they got there not because of the traditional Democratic Party mechanism, but because of grassroots organizers. Well, it, it just it's a shame that the Democratic Party, after 
after so many losses, after let's just start with the shellacking. I mean, there was that famous shellacking after after uh, President Obama. Uh, he acknowledged the loss of of the House in two thousand. What was that? Yeah. Two thousand ten. Which was the Tea Party wave, yeah. The Tea Party wave, exactly. And you know, and of course, the Tea Party had been organizing well before Obama. It had nothing. I mean, I think that that it exacerbated it. But this is not a new movement. It's like an evolution of the movement. I mean, we saw yesterday what happened. Uh, I'm going to guess a lot of those folks were Tea Party members at one point when that still existed. So they they morph into different movements, but. Um, there was a very conscious effort. I mean, the, the, the DNC in particular is something I have a lot of experience w- w- sorting out these details. But in 2006, uh, the Democrats won the House. That was a year that uh, Howard Dean, the DNC version of Howard Dean, pre-lobbying, uh, instituted the 50-state strategy again. And then they let that go. And uh, the party became Obama's party. He, he merged OFA, his organizing um, outlet for his campaign into the DNC. And part of that was because they were fighting for uh, for his health care, Obamacare. And and then somewhere along the lines, it just said, you know, we're not going to put the money back in the parties, even though we lost the House. And I just, to me, that just seemed as if they didn't understand, like, the most basic tenets of of politics. I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't know how you get shellacked and you don't say, well, let's do something about this. What, what is it going to take? Well, I think actually that's one of the uh, things we need to watch for right now in 2020. You know, when uh, Obama uh, won in 2008, one of the things that liberals and progressives did was say, gosh, what we need to do is to go to DC and advocate for policy change there. What they really should have done is rush back to communities to do the kind of grassroots organizing and social movement mobilization that could have provided wind to Obama's sales when he was right on things like healthcare and held him accountable when he was wrong on things like immigration and creating a deportation regime. And into that vacuum stepped the Tea Party. You know, they were astroturfed in for sure by Cook Brother Dollars, but they were actually responding to this opportunity to do organizing. So I think one of the things that we need to insist on and lift up from this campaign is that it's not that Joe Biden won it. And it's not that John Ossoff or Raphael Warnick won it. It's that grassroots organizers, black women, Asian organizers, Latino immigrants, shifted Georgia and shifted the nation. They also were able to reach out to progressive whites of goodwill in the suburbs and really kind of make things happen there as well. So I think it's incredibly important to get back to what is really politics, which is our daily conversations with one another, uh, that sort of shift and create the consensus that we need to change this country. I think what's so frustrating to me is, is, you know, it, it really doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to, just as if uh, philanthropies don't need to exist to solve problems that the state should be solving, in my opinion. Um, I don't feel like the burden should be on community organizers to register folks to vote when the party, <laughs> a very well-funded mechanism, might I add, especially this last cycle, should be really putting forth that effort um, into not just registering folks to vote. I mean, that's that's the bare minimum you should be doing. But Recruiting the next line of talent, uh, training folks to work on these campaigns. I mean, one thing I heard over and over this cycle was there weren't en- there wasn't enough staff out there 
that had experience or training to work on this record number of candidates running uh, their races. And, and it was, it just, it seems like we're constantly playing catch up. And then these small community groups or larger ones, uh, shout out to Nabila Islam, who's a friend of our yeah. shows. She's, um, she's a Bengali and, and she lives in Gwinnett County. It's a South Asian, a very large South Asian population. She started a group called SOS, Save Our Senate, but she had to go out there and raise the money on her own. And like, this to me is, is just, uh, it's such a failure of, 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 our, of our political institution to, at this point, given 1,200 seats lost, shellackings, you know, not having the Senate, um, I, I, you know, really, it was way too close even against Trump this last cycle. It shouldn't have been this close, at least electoral college-wise. And to, to still say, like, you know, the burden should be on the organizers. It's amazing work that they're doing, without a doubt. But my God, come on. Yeah, no, I agree, and I don't. I'm not trying to say that the burden should be on them, but I know that that's where the leadership should be. You know, you mentioned the book "State of Resistance" about the change in California politics, and it's easy from outside the state to forget that we are the state that gave you Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, tax cutting, anti-immigrant hysteria, three strikes laws, and overcriminalization of Black and Brown youth at a and scale. Prop twenty two. Prop twenty two. That was actually recently. That was actually at a level far above the rest of the country. Uh, and that arc of change from the 90s in California to uh, being a leader in raising the minimum wage, a leader on protecting immigrants, and a leader on addressing climate change, that didn't happen because of the Democratic Party. That happened because of movement organizers that recognized that they needed to move uh, politics away from get out the vote in moments of crisis to integrated voter engagement that relies on continual engagement with voters and on a daily basis. Because the trick is not simply to get people to vote. It's to get them to recognize that the act of voting and democratic participation is your uh, entry drug uh, into the world of showing up at a city council meeting, showing up at a commission hearing, showing up when the police need to be regulated, uh, showing up on a daily basis to make sure that community organizing and community engagement changes the country. It's, it's, it's a partnership, right? You, you, you need both for different reasons, but it, it's, if one does not fulfill their role, the other has more of a burden. And um, I mean, it, it really is jaw dropping, but let, let's talk a little bit about what kind of work was hap happening in Georgia over over the last decade. I mean, you, you first wrote about this in 2010, right? Yeah. Well, what you could tell in Georgia for, if you looked at the data, a couple of really interesting things. One is that it was changing demographically. It had become a magnet for new immigrants, uh, Asian immigrants, South Asian, which you just mentioned, and Latino immigrants as well. But there's another thing that's incredibly important about Georgia, which is that of all of the deep South states, it is the state that's got the largest share of black folks who are actually born in another state. So there's a lot of people who are kind of coming back to Georgia on the idea that it was sort of a black Mecca, but they also brought with them a kind of frustration with traditional black politics in Georgia, which a lot of it had to do with accommodation, with corporate interests, and sort of lining up uh, with politics as usual within the Democratic Party. And that created an opening for a sort of new kind of politics 
that involve doing the kind of grassroots organizing around campaigns like raising wages, around campaigns like protecting immigrants, around campaigns like protecting the black vote. And it's that grassroots organizing. You could just glimpse glimpse it a decade ago, and it's kind of come into full realization in this last electoral cycle. That's fascinating. So the, the, the infrastructure that was there before, the, the um, Black organizing that was happening, can you talk a little bit more about the corporate side of it and why there was this, this friction? Well, one of the things that, you know, one of the easiest ways to kind of think about it is the following. Um, Atlanta builds itself politically and by the business community as the city that is too busy to hate. That is, it tries to talk about racial harmony as a selling point. Atlanta has plenty of time to hate. I mean, if you look at the way in which it disenfranchises local black Atlantans, if you look at the way in which they haven't laid out the transit lines to make it easy for people to get to work, if you look at the fact uh, that when you look carefully at the data that uh, black People who are born in Georgia have basically not benefited from the uh, boom in the economy that's occurred in Georgia. You recognize that there's plenty of inequality and plenty of issues to address. But there's been an accommodation on the part of a lot of traditional black civil rights leadership with the corporate community. And one of the things that I think has been really challenged by these younger black activists and organizers is that accommodation. They're saying that it's not enough to get a few seats on the board of a major corporation. What we need to do is to change the rules of the game that have over-criminalized black people, the rules of the game that mean that black working class people are not seeing increases in the minimum wage in a state that doesn't do that, to make sure that black people and other people of color in the state are not under the threat of eviction. So they've broadened the agenda to an agenda that merges class and race together. And I think that's the secret for the Democratic Party and for progressive politics going forward. Um, where do you see, you say going forward, where do you see uh, the electoral uh, makeup going forward? I mean, this is this was a, such a huge set of wins. And granted, there were some very weird things that were happening, like uh, it was a, there were very close wins. Um, possibly affected, possibly, although we don't know for sure, by the president's weird uh, war against the sitting senators in not overturning the election. But um, will that change? I mean, uh, Senate seats obviously are are six years, so we don't, we have some time here and and the the demographics could shift enough by then. But will that change in time for the next gubernatorial election, for the next legislative election? Are we seeing is the organizing catching up with the demographic shifts? Whereas some of the other elections were close, but part of that reason is because the, the organizing wasn't there to facilitate and, and, and work with um, the demographic shifts. You know, people outside of my golden state don't like to hear this, but California is America just sooner. Our demographic change between 1980 and 2000 is the demographic change the United States is going through between 2000 and 2050. Our poisonous politics in the 1990s, in the midst of deep economic pain, whipping up the flames of uh, racial hate, uh, uh, that's the politics that the United States is going through right now. And our future can be America's future, a future in which we've almost completely decimated the Republican Party in this state. 
And it has been a combination of grassroots organizing, changing the Democratic Party, and then also something that's really important, and I think it's a shift that you've been seeing in recent days at a state level and at a national level, business finally beginning to realize that accommodating with the Republican Party and the politics of racism and hate and fascism is not exactly a recipe for a winning future. So one of the interesting things that I think happened in Georgia is that the business community wasn't as convinced that these senators would be that good for business. They were also, uh, they understand that if you really want to appeal to the dynamic sectors of the economy, it's not coal and it's not uh, regressive uh, business practices. It's high tech. It's uh, the creative industries. It's a lot of stuff about the future and that future values diversity and it values welcomeness. And I think you can see that just yesterday, the head of the National Association of Manufacturers not traditionally a left-wing group, call for the president to be removed by the 25th Amendment. And I think you're beginning to see a little bit of that shift kind of occur. I think it's very, very important. You know, uh, when President, when 2016, the day after uh, Trump uh, won in commas, the presidency, that is the day that Hillary Clinton uh, gave up her campaign, um, I went in to go talk to my staff of a research center. I've got about 20 staff, a lot of them millennials, lots of them with undocumented relatives, et cetera. They were quite crestfallen and they were looking to me for hope and inspiration. And I said to them, um, you know what? I think it's going to be worse than you think. Um, now, I that didn't really inspire them. <laughs> But I'm not a, going to you and I need some, some hope. <laughs> but it was a completely accurate prediction yes, it and it got as bad as possible just yesterday. But my prediction now, and I just had a meeting with my staff is it's going to get better than you think. It's going to get better because we now have a democratic house, a democratic Senate, a democratic president. Because Georgia was won by community organizing and progressive social movements. Because of the full face, face of fascism was shown in the Capitol yesterday. And Trump has been thoroughly discredit. And because the full face of racism was shown in the Capitol yesterday, because it's not now just black organizers pointing to the contradictions. People have seen on television, they know that if Black Lives Matter protesters or protesters for immigrant rights had gotten anywhere near the Capitol, they would not have been treated with the kind of kid gloves that this white marauding crowd of domestic terrorists found themselves in terms of treatment. All of that, I think, is deeply seared into the American psyche. Our task, and it's complicated, is to do two things, to open our hearts and make the tent bigger and bring people in who are realizing the mistakes they've made. And at the same time, harden our strategies and become determined to destroy the modern Republican Party because they have lost their right to exist and speak in the world with any kind of degree of authority. How we combine heart and head, soul and strategy will define where we go as a nation, Georgia has shown us the way. 
That's quite a pep talk, man. Um, so you, I, can, you can get inspired by me. I can. I'm going to add like just a little sliver for progressives who who may feel, well, you know, Obama, he, he had the House and the Senate and 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 we, we lost our opportunity. My own take on that being an elder millennial uh, who was part of, of Obama 08 and protested the Iraq war and not forgetting that George W. Bush was the most unpopular president at that point um, going in. We didn't have the organization we have now. People are two things. Nobody's going into the Biden administration like with hope and change, you know, blurry, blurried vision. Number one. Number two, uh, <laughs> yesterday, if, if we had any leverage, the moment is the leverage. Great Depression 2.0, a pandemic that needs massive government response to be able to distribute vaccines like he actually has to spend money on this. Um and 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 of course, just this 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 growing white supremacy that is just it's gotten to a point where even without Trump in the presidency or worse, maybe he's going to keep organizing. Um, it will only grow. So it has to be dealt with. But simultaneously, because folks have not had have not been relying on the Democrats or the president or whatever since 2010, since uh, 2009, folks are organizing, like you just said, in, in Georgia on their own and showing up. So that pressure on the outside, I truly believe even at this point, even with the appointments uh, to the administration that I am not happy about, I don't think he can run away from this. I don't think you can astroturf through this situation. It is too dire that Joe Biden is going to have to have to respond. Otherwise, the country, it's not that his reputation will get worse or his legacy won't be as strong. The country will fall into a deeper pit. You know, I think that's a really, really important thing to say. And I always felt with Obama that people who had expressed disappointment uh, were somewhat shocking to me because you can only push a politician as far as you've changed the political calculus of that person to make it possible. So I always think that we need to look in the mirror and ask the question, what are we doing to do the kind of organizing and community building to actually change the political calculus so there is no choice but to have a massive stimulus bill. There is no choice but to build racial equity into policing. There is no choice but to address climate change through a Green New Deal that actually delivers benefits to frontline communities that have long suffered from environmental injustice and creates transitions for communities that have been reliant on jobs and fossil fuel. And it's going to require, as you said, some pushing from the outside, but it's also going to require outsiders getting in. You know, Raphael Warnock did not fashion himself to be a politician. He's an outsider who stepped in to run and win. And I think that when you look in particular at the squad in uh, Congress, when you take a look at some of our dynamic political figures who have emerged from my state, California, someone like a Karen Bass, who made the leap from community organizing to the state assembly to the Congress, that we need to have pressure from the outside. We need to have outside community organizers running for office themselves. And then we need to understand that they're only going to be able to move as far as we make these conditions change politically for them. Excuse me, Dr. Manuel Pastor. <laughs> I hit the mute button by accident. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. This was just the perfect 
uh, conversation to have in this moment. We had to reflect on what happened in Georgia and connect it to the crisis that we're facing, uh, the bigger crisis, but also this 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 fascistic crisis, because uh, we're going to just keep beating the drum on this. You can't ignore fascism. There are there are patterns that uh, I think we've kind of moved through because of the because every day there was a new Trump issue, and that's part of the fascistic like pattern into the rise of fascism. Uh, but the movements also show their own patterns, and I think um, it's really important to think about that as organizers and how we fight that, and 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 also fight within our own institutions to make sure that they're 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 doing what they need to do. So I'm really I'm very grateful that you were able to join today, and um, hope to have you back on soon. Be well. Stay safe, healthy. Glad to be with you. And I've never been more hopeful and more determined that we need to do the hard work and make the change possible. Thank you very much. We will be right back with the one and only Representative Chris Rabb. We'll be talking about yesterday's events and the events that have been happening in the Pennsylvania Capitol. You, you, you won't believe it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I could not uh, imagine having a better guest for today to reflect on uh, what happened at the Capitol as we were going live. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who weren't here, we were getting ready for the show and this was all happening and, and we just turned the show into like a breaking news, you know, live show and um, just everybody really stepped up. Uh, Representative Rab represents the 200th district in the Pennsylvania House. Uh, Pennsylvania has a whole lot of lawmakers and a whole not enough rules to to uh, hold them accountable for their actions. I'll just start with that. <laughs> he is a progressive. He is the author of in, in, Invisible Capital, which I see over his head. You should grab that and promote it so people can uh, buy your book. It's a great book. Uh, he is <laughs> he is a scholar of many things and a regular on our show. Rep Rap, thanks for joining us today. You're on mute. Boop, boop. <laughs> I did it too today. <laughs> it's one of those days. Nine months of a pandemic and we still can't, you know. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. Of course, of course. So let's just start off with um, what went down in the Capitol uh, in Pennsylvania before we get to the... <laughs> right, pick a capital, right? Pick a capital, which capital? Because it's, you know, listen, I, I appreciate you having me on the show. You know, your show reaches a broad audience. It's not one state. It, people are watching you in different countries, too. And I think it's important that you you have affirmed those of us who are in that... Uh, in that invisible layer of government, state government, which conservatives for generations have known is so important to their national aspirations towards fascism, right? Right. So uh, this is a really important teaching moment because what happened in Harrisburg, which is the capital of, of the state of Pennsylvania um, on Tuesday is very relevant to what happened on Wednesday in the, our nation's capital. In Harrisburg, we were to be sworn in. We're sworn in on the first Tuesday of January. No matter what day it falls on, whatever date it falls on, it's the first Tuesday. Uh, and uh, we have, for the first general election ever, we've had uh, mail-in voting, voting. We've never had that before. It was a bipartisan bill that I actually opposed, not because I'm against mail-in voting, but because of other politics that I found deeply offensive. 
And so it was passed with bipartisan support. The majority of Republicans in both chambers supported mail-in voting. The problem was they didn't see the pandemic coming and they didn't see that uh, the most disenfranchised members of the electorate would be using, and who also believe in science, would be using mail-in voting to avoid getting the coronavirus by showing up for 13 hours on a Tuesday to express their, 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 their rights um, to cast the ballot. So a, uh, a state senator, an incumbent, uh, Jim Brewster, uh, looked like he had lost because they hadn't counted all the votes. When they counted all the votes, he won. And he won by under 100 votes. Under 100 votes. They represent almost a quarter million people. He lost, he won by 67 votes. Fair and square, super close. Damn. They counted them, recounted them. He won fair and square. But because it was because of the last minute um, uh, mail-in ballots that put him over the top. And we know in Pennsylvania and through pretty much every state that does this, maybe with a few exceptions, that the folks who tend to, to vote by mail or vote early um, are the folks who uh, Republicans seem to care about the least and are wise enough um, not to support their policies. So they wouldn't install him. They would not swear him in. They would not let him sw be sworn in. These are colleagues of his. He was not a new member. He won re-election. And they did not let him be sworn into office because they didn't like the outcome of the election. Unreal. Now, were these, I just have a question about this. The, the colleagues, the Republican colleagues that refused to swear him in, um, w were they all of the Republicans or was it a, uh, a brand of Republican that may align with Trump, may align with Q? Were they elected on that? Because, I mean, this is what I'm trying to understand. Let, is who let me in make the Republican Party is letting this happen? Let me make it real simple for you. There are not a lot of gradations of my Republican colleagues in the House or Senate. They are, they are either aggressively in love with Donald Trump or they are... Um, um, tepidly supportive of him. But there, there's no one that I know of who was a Republican who was anti-Trump. I don't know of any colleague who said that they would not be voting for him or they thought he should be removed from office before yesterday or that not a single one. And the, our chambers have been controlled by Republicans for generations, largely through gerrymandering. Because what, what your audience needs to know is that we can say Pennsylvania is this or that, whatever, but it's because of political gerrymandering that has allowed for the overrepresentation of uh, Republicans in state government and in statewide offices because they rigged the system um, in the 2000 after the 2010 census and after the 2000 census and so on. Um, that will change perhaps significantly after this census and having a state supreme court that's seven two Democrat. So that's good news, but we have over a million registered, more registered Democrats than Republicans. But you would not know that looking at- Are you kidding me? Over a mo million? almost a million, one million. And there's only 13 million people in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, we're the 11th most populous state in the country, I believe. But there are a ton of uh, Democratic uh, voters beyond uh, what the Republicans claim. And yet you would not know that looking at our state legislature. So they are overrepresented over in state government. So these white folk in power um, denied another white man 
the ability to be inaugurated, even though the election results were certified. They were certified. So when we talk about black on black violence, I want to bring it back to the real violence, which is white on white violence <laughs> happening in state governments and institutions across the nation. I will be on the front lines of that violence. I, if hey, you listen, need me to be so, I am happy to. <laughs> I know you would appreciate that framing because I, I don't I don't believe there's such a thing as black on black violence. But if we're gonna if we're gonna honor that trope, then we got to talk about white on white violence, and that's okay. what we saw yesterday. Um, so so here's how it relates. So uh, one of uh, a former colleague of mine in the state house who ran for con- Congress and lost against Connor Lamb uh, was on uh, was on um, social media saying, "Let's um, uh, let let's storm the Capitol," and he ran into a buddy of his who's the current who is a current state senator, Doug Mastriano, um, who was you know priming the pump and inciting violence. So some of us are uh, calling for him to um, resign immediately. Um, so we've had Republican leadership ask for fellow Republicans to resign if they, um, we have a guy who um, raped another member. What? Uh, came to her house, put, had her at gunpoint. What? Yes. I'm sorry, yeah. but. And no, 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 still- I'm just, no, 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 I'm just getting started. No, no, that's, I'm just starting. I need you to. Stay with me so you know that what I'm dealing with. I need to take a breath for a second. Hang on. Another member happened gunpoint. Stalk and sexually assault another member. They're both Republicans, both white Republicans in in the same chamber. He, they asked him to leave. Fast forward a year. They asked another. (laughs) No, no, no. They asked another member who I worked closely with. He was the chair of the finance committee who was um, drugging and raping women. They asked him to resign. A few months ago- Did, they, did the, and then what happened? Are they being prosecuted? Like, yeah, they're not resigning. Point. You can't serve in, in, in office if you're in jail. No, nothing? Cops nothing just yet. silent? Nope, too, too, too concerned with bending the knee. Got it, take yeah. the knee. Yeah, so then recently, just a couple months ago, a colleague of mine who came into office, same with me, a conservative Republican from- Western PA young guy, I think he's in his 30s, uh, was, um, was uh, trying to get his um, toddler to smoke a cigar and um, was talking about uh, um, getting prostitutes, uh, a whole, like a whole mess on social media. The, our, our Republican leadership asked him to resign. He did not, the other two did. But here's the thing, when you have somebody who, who is at the, who leaves Pennsylvania, who goes to Washington, D.C., is on social media and is promoting, you know, the inciting violence and talking about storming the Capitol, there is utter silence. The people who he was inciting were, um, were going against the revered police community, who they love. Blue Lives Matter, you know, that's the thing unless they're doing their job in ways that go against their conspiracy theories. Then they don't care, what, they don't care you're a cop. You're only a cop if, they, if um, they don't stand in your way. It's okay if, if cops stand in the way of, of justice or humanity for black and brown folk, queer folk, whatever, undocumented folk, whatever. But if you stand in the way of conspiracy theories, then we will push you. We don't care how white you are. We don't care how big your badge is. We will shut you down. 
So the very thing they claim to love the most, whether it's the Constitution, the electoral process, the hallowed halls, law enforcement itself, none of that matters if they don't get what they want. So there, there's an inflection point where some of the most egregiously foul Republicans are sounding really enlightened as of last night because they look so bad. And it's like, wait, I can yep. see you harassing and dehumanizing black folk, homeless folk, queer folk, trans folk, whatever. But when you mess up my workplace, my revered Senate, which I used to work in when I was in my early 20s, and my boss wasn't allowed to go to the House floor because she wore a pantsuit. 1993, I was a, a young Senate staffer, and it was a big thing. She showed up to work, went on the Senate floor, and they're like, whoa, whoa Senator, you, you, you can't come to the House floor, uh, Senate floor. She's like, why? They're like, you're wearing slacks. I, I mean, like, after the rape comment, I'm not surprised. <laughs> right, but gonna... we're talking about the U.S. Senate in 1993. Oh, U.S. Senate, got it, got it, got it. I'm talking Senate. about Carol Mosley Braun, first black woman senator, got showing it. up to work just like all of her male colleagues, and they're like, you can't wear slacks on the House floor, on the Senate floor. And she was not someone to use colorful language, but you know what kind of look she gave them. And they changed that, that practice from that instant. Just to pull back the curtain a little bit, there are newsrooms that up until two years ago still had that rule. Yeah. So in my place of work on the house floor, you have to wear a, a, a tie if you want to come to the house floor, but you don't have to wear a mask. So it's more important for decorum than public <laughs> health. When we've had 11 <laughs> elected officials, 11 in, in the past nine months who have come down with coronavirus and who are super spreaders. And I have to go there. I didn't bring my kids there on Tuesday. They, my, listen, my Tuesday youngest- you were sworn in again. Let's just make wait, sure. Right. By the way, congratulations. Right. <laughs> Missed that you. through this chaos. You were sworn in for your third term. <laughs> and so I, I, I got, I, they said, you know, what um, sacred book do you want to be sworn in on? And so- um, we take an oath, oath of office to, hold, to uphold the, our state constitution and, and the U.S. constitution. And so they give us Bibles, um, but I kind of believe in the separation of church and state. And my oath is not to a, a sacred document beyond the ones that we are actually constitutionally bound to, which are our constitutions. So I've sworn in on constitutions in my first and second terms. This time I switched it up and, I, and um, I, I took the oath of office on a book from 1837, which I, I bought um, a vintage book online years ago that was the uh, printed deliberations of the Pennsylvania Conventional, uh, the Constitutional Convention, where they amended the state constitution to rescind black men's right to vote. In 1780, our state constitution allowed for all free men to vote, which would include black people, include everyone. As long as they were men and they were free, you could vote, at least on paper, not necessarily so much in practice. 58 years later, the all-white state legislature said, nah. So that's what, I, that's what I took my oath of office on, and I shared it with as many of my white colleagues as possible, including the Speaker of the House. I love it. And he did not know that the state constitution was amended in 1838. 
And I didn't know either until I started my work on reparations because I'm seeking to document every single explicitly anti-Black white supremacist state law that has allowed for the further degradation of Black lives through public policy on the executive, judicial, and legislative branches in our state. And it, it ties into what happened yesterday, a degradation of our very institutions. But we're talking about the desecration of symbols and places, but we, didn't, we don't hear any commentary of these newly enlightened uh, Republicans who talk about the desecration of our democracy itself by the policies and the legislation that they so proudly support. So what those uh, white supremacists did yesterday is nothing compared to the policies, the laws that are on the books um, that have dehumanized millions of people to this day. So the irony was just too great for me. I had to shut off the uh, TV and, and just get some sleep because um, the hypocrisy was too great. And the last thing I want to say real yeah. quick, because sure. you got me all worked up. For my colleagues and uh, uh, friends and acquaintances and so forth who were saying, rightfully so, if that was a black group, a uh, BIPOC group, they would have been shot like pigs, right? That's true. But then when they say this is totally un-American, I shut down. Because what people need to understand who Thank don't you. know the history or are operating under a collective delusion, this is the protected norm, what we saw yesterday. The reason they could get away with it was because of their whiteness. Right, because we know no one would suggest that they could have gotten that it was the Capitol Police would you know was understaffed, and if it were all black, it wouldn't you know it would have been the same way. No, you know that wouldn't have happened. They would have shut that down. So this is the norm when we talk about white mob violence and vigilantism. That is the norm. It is. It explains why millions of black people left the South because we were run out of these rural towns in the South. That's white vigilantism. None of that was legal, but it was the norm and the protected norm. And white folk who remained in the South, who benefited from all of those black folk leaving and taking their land, their business, their property, there's no reparations around that. There's no understanding that they benefited from these protected norms of vigilantism. The Tulsa uh, massacre of, of 1921 is the perfect example. There's so many. Wealthy community, black excellence targeted for success. Yes. And a massacre happens. Uh, Rep. Rap, I want to I wanna show you a clip because um, I was so, I took a break yesterday. I'll, I'll tell you a little personal story. I, we covered the show uh, for over two hours and thank you to everybody who, who, who stayed uh, in the chat and engaged. Um, and I had to go grocery shopping and I, I went to Trader Joe's <laughs> and I was on the phone because you know they, they don't let you in line because of COVID, they space you out. So I was sitting in front of the line and I was on the phone and I was talking to somebody about the coup and, and the guy goes, how's your day going? And he was regulating the line. I said, well, you know, it started off great, but why do we have a run a coup? I don't know what's going on. And I turned, the woman behind me goes, good for them. Sorry, that was very loud. Good for them, good for them. And I'm like, and she goes, they're finally being revealed. And I was like, oh yeah, the Trumpsters are finally being revealed. She goes, no, I'm one of them. And I'm like, okay. So I walk away, go and do my groceries. I'm still on the phone, da, 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 just taking my calls. I'm in the dairy section. And she shows up with her cart and she looks, she doesn't look like any of the people on Capitol Hall, I'll just say that. 
she's you know well dressed her hair is you know it was just could have could have passed for any background any political background right pulls up her cart and goes how dare you how dare you be so vocal about a coup right mentioning it to somebody else and then she goes he won by 50 percent 50 percent she starts screaming at me and plowing me with her cart and I'm literally like running away from her and everyone's watching. It was the, it was the craziest thing. And it was very I much, I didn't punch her. I literally just shouted white supremacist and ran away. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, that, that was the lead up. So I'm like, oh, I'm so frustrated. I was like, how can anybody respond in clarity right now? This is just the hottest moment. I turn on the radio, I put on NPR and Corey Bush is being interviewed from I believe the basement of the Capitol because they were under lockdown and with such clarity and such, I mean, it was just, uh, it was, it was, it was, her preacher was coming out in her. She talked about the injustices. She talked about what was happening and for her to be ready because she knew this was coming. She didn't, she didn't, she didn't come up with this last night. She knew that they were organizing because they announced it and she created this It wasn't this exactly a secret. It wasn't a secret because I saw these people say, well, why did she write it the day before? Because they were announcing it. Maybe the cops should have noticed that too. So let's play the clip of Cori Bush because I was brought to tears listening to her on NPR earlier and then she uh, uh, went on, on air. Uh, do we have that clip, Dorsey? And had it been people who look like me, had it been the same amount of people, but had they been black and brown, we wouldn't have made it up those steps. We wouldn't have made it to be able to get into the door and, bu and bust windows and go put our feet up on desks of Congress members. We wouldn't have made it that far. We would have been shot. Yeah. We would have been tear gas. We would rubber bullets. That would have happened before we made it there. We need to call it what it is. It's white supremacy. It was white privilege. And it was the call of our president. And it was encouraged by our Republican colleagues. And that is why every single one of them, especially because they have been the ones trying to steal this election. That's why we are calling for them to be removed. They should not be seated. Ditto. <laughs> I mean, she laid it out. I mean, so, I mean, what, what I do like, though, is that uh, what the Congresswoman said has been um, amplified and um, stated so strongly by so many people. And I got to tell you, as a, as a black man of 50 years, this is really the first time in my life where I've seen non-politicized or even recently politicized white people say what most black people have been saying forever, which is, oh, that's messed up. If you know if there were black people, these are white people. Like we don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not used to that level of kind of almost consensus. And there's no one in my sphere other than under the dome and in Harrisburg where people would say otherwise. And I understand I live in a bubble, but I, I do reach out. So that's, that's kind of the silver lining that there's no question. Well, I wonder if they would have been treated the same way if they're black. So, but that's so basic. We need to take it a step up. And so here's, the, here's the, where the teaching moment comes in for me. What is our collective responsibility beyond what happened in Capitol Hill, beyond what happened with the, the process of certifying this election or accepting the, the electoral votes, beyond the transition, uh, the peaceful transition to, uh, of power, right? What is the collective responsibility of white people to have these very difficult conversations with other white people in positions of power to say, this would not have happened uh, without uh, systemic 
white privilege, right, weaponized in the, in the most racial way, and to make sure this doesn't happen again. Because black people really can't be in the room when that happens. I mean, we could, but it's not our responsibility. Right. So I, I, I want to show something because I think this is, you just sort of opened it for, for us. Um, now, note this was before the Capitol was storms, but I think it's important to emphasize that this was the conversation before the Capitol was stormed by one of the more, as they would call her, more reasonable Republicans who comes from the Maverick family. Uh, I'm talking about Megan McCain, who is back at The View. And, and full disclosure, I, I know this woman. I know her from, from, I know her from cable newsrooms. Um, generally speaking, and this is, this is, I'm saying this intentionally because I do think that this is where people get lost. She reaches across party aisle. She does, I mean, on, on the show, clearly there's some drama happening there. But off the show, she talks to everybody. She quotes Democrats. You're in the newsroom with her. Her mother, I think, is a little bit more progressive than we all know. But there's a danger in that. And what I'm going to show you right now is I think highlights this beyond. So let's play that clip of, of, of Meghan McCain with uh, Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. agree and join Joe Manchin um, and agree that you are not for that. I, I, I am, my job is to take the concerns that are being raised by my constituent. And what I'm telling you is that they're asking about their health care. They're asking about whether or not they can uh, earn a livable wage for working hard every day. And they're wondering when in the world are they going to get relief after waiting for it for months. And right now, what is the Senate doing? They're engaged in a famous exercise of privilege and power, uh, challenging the basic norm of our government. The people of Georgia rose up and rebuked that kind of politics last night. And I intend to represent their interests in the U.S. Senate to make sure they have health care, to make sure that they enjoy a livable wage, and that their voice can be heard in their democracy. Senator, I understand that. I'm okay. just asking you, would you request well, I'm just gonna, would you, I, actually, I'm, I I'm actually going to end this. I get, hey, listen, we're going to say thanks to the Senator-elect, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and we will be right back. Thank you for coming back, sir. Great to be on The View. <laughs> that, I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, I, listen, I... I <laughs> What was she saying, though? What was the what was the direct question she thought he was avoiding? I I don't know. I I, I did read it on Twitter. I, that was, this was, I think. But the, the the what's so weird about this, right? She spent the last four years criticizing Trump. She spent the last four years saying this is not our party. Um, every single act, you know, we are more dignified as Republicans than this. I, you know, uh, praising her father. I miss my father. Meanwhile, this guy just kicked. Kelly Loeffler's butt, a woman who has, has clear racial issues, um, insider trading, which Martha Stewart, of all people, got into more trouble for, for, for way less. He's, she's nothing like what she has painted her father to be. And not to mention, this is a state in which Donald Trump did everything he could to reverse the election. I, I'm like, which side are you? I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I'm. I'm. So let's talk about the the, the 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 differences between the racist right and the more dignified right, and how 
it matters that the dignified right don't just give a speech on on the floor when they look bad, but actually follow through and what they can do to follow through and how we can hold them accountable. Well, I mean, it's all racism. You know, some is more explicit or extreme than others. I mean, look, as a cis hetero man, I have to process issues of classism, of colorism, of sexism, of all these different things, uh, ableism. Like, I work through issues of privilege myself, right? And I'm a black man. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> no one has a monopoly on this stuff. But the reality is, I, I can't take myself out of the spectrum. I can say, you know, I'm feminist leaning or whatever, but I can do better as a man. I can do better as hetero identified. I can, you know, I can do so much better, but it, everyone needs to say that. Everyone can do better, have the humility, have the decency to say, I'm a flawed human being and I will continue to make mistakes, but I don't want to make the same mistakes. Now, for those people who are weaponized by elective office and large campaign coffers and so forth, they have an even more important responsibility. They have a more important responsibility because their their critiques, their assumptions, their worldviews influence public policy that impacts millions of people. And I don't, I don't care if the person is liberal or conservative, they can still, they can still do and say racist things, right? Um, and so what is, what, what is their responsibility in this moment? Because it's, now it's easy to go against Trump. Now we've got all these Republicans talking about how he's desecrated the office and so forth. He, he, he did that four, I mean, five years ago. I mean, like, this is a non-issue. I'm not impressed by anyone resigning. I'm not impressed with anyone sending out tweets or uh, you know any of these things. Nothing. None of that impresses me. What impresses me is doing better in substantive ways that impact institutions and make sure that this doesn't happen again, irrespective of who's in the majority, who's in the Oval Office. That's what is impressive. And to make that change, it, it takes courage and it takes integrity. And that's not something that's encouraged among a lot of public figures. And it's not encouraged among a lot of Americans, frankly, to do this type of work. We're in a, in a nation that's not even um, infected by amnesia. Not enough people know our own history to have amnesia, to have the luxury of amnesia. We don't know. And so my grandfather used to say, it's okay being ignorant. It's not okay to stay ignorant. Right. And that's that's part of American culture. We are in love with our ignorance. We want to believe we are the best. How are you can be the best if you haven't seen what other countries are doing. If you don't have a passport, you have no business to say that. If you say I've been to every country or many countries and America's the best. OK, you're entitled to your opinion. But if you've never visited another country, you don't speak another language, you don't know other people, then shut the fuck up. Yeah, I said it. And, and, and we yeah, should have a society that gives people the ability to do so, because how many people can't leave their communities? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and I mean, I know people, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, in Western New York, and I, I, I will never forget, I had a family member who, out, I didn't grow up in Buffalo, I grew up outside of Buffalo, 35 miles outside of Buffalo, something like that. And uh, <laughs> I had a family member who, told me she had not been into the city of Buffalo in over 15 years. I went there every day. My school was there. I was like, what? That's where bad people live. 
It's where the bad people are. No, it was exactly what it was. It was, it was, I mean, she was not a blood relative. I'm just making that very clear because she was not a blood relative. But she came from whiter roots. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but a- man, I mean, but this is, this is a, this is a, a, a problem. Um, I think what you said is about ignorance is spot on. I just want to read the, the, you mentioned what did, uh, McCain say, she said, Senator, I do believe that average Americans care about packing the courts. I just want to know if you would agree or join Joe Manchin and agree that you are not for that. Well, here's what's so problematic about that statement. We live in a nation that is civically illiterate. So what percentage of voters, what percentage of uh, adults, what percentage of anyone who can read and write know how many people are on the Supreme Court? or know anything about our- You know that the Supreme Court exists. But, I mean, so that, that is, um, she could have framed that differently. She could have said, if she were operating in good faith, she could have said something like, do you think it is appropriate for um, a new majority to uh, expand the Supreme Court to protect their own interests at the expense of the greater good? Now, I wouldn't agree with that, but that's a little more honest, right? But we've done it before, there's nothing that says we can't. We can do it in the right way or we could do it in a shabby way. We could actually um, ha- expand the size of the Supreme Court to have more diverse and highly competent justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, even irrespective of their political ideology, they are very competent and smart people who do not share my political philosophy. I do not believe those people are idiots. I believe they're wrong. <laughs> right? There's a difference. So... What he has done, and some conservatives agree, that a number of, their, of his uh, appointments and nominees are not actually competent for the roles that they serve in. That's a bigger issue. And that's something that even, and I, I was not a fan of John McCain as, as an elected official. His Maverick thing, I think, was way blown out of proportion. I, I'm just, you know, him being, you know, more decent than everyone else is not impressive to me. All right? That's like saying... Um, he didn't shoot somebody on the floor, so exactly. he's a good guy. Yeah, I'm so I, I'm not in love with with that that uh, that framing of, of him. Um, but he she could have said that. So most people are not thinking about packing the courts. They're thinking about being evicted. They're thinking about right. um, surviving COVID or avoiding COVID or not being beat up uh, by a police officer for doing nothing wrong. They're thinking about a whole bunch of things. They're not thinking about packing the courts. That's a very small percentage of our population. And for her to lead with that, it's a gotcha question that is problematic. But you know, it's also problematic. The most important person in the Senate now is Joe Manchin. Thank you. He's like Mr. Power Broker. He and, and Kirsten Cinema are going to be sitting there, you know, come and kiss my ring, come and move my vote. How about we primary your asses? Sorry. <laughs> like, again, again, right. I should say. It's arithmetic, right? There's 50-50 there's yeah. tiebreaker Yep. Is the vice president, and you know if he if if he says I'm not going to vote this way, you know, or I want this in exchange for my vote, um, then Biden is going to be in a tough position. The problem, of course, is if um, Biden doesn't um, cower to Joe Manchin's bullying, um, potential bullying, and he switches parties, or he or he becomes an independent and caucuses, as has, has happened, you know, obviously. That's something Bernie Sanders has done, caucus with the Democrats, and he caucuses with the Republicans, um, then, um, you know, Biden is not, I would hope that Biden does not reward him for that defection 
it'll make it hard for him to do things back home in West Virginia. So That's he'll right. be a new darling of the right, but you know, at a great cost. So I don't know how this is going to um, bear out, but it's not going to be um, puppy dogs and rainbows until we can work out this, this political dynamic where you have these blue dogs and um, I believe, you know, traitors um, who are going to manipulate the Senate for their own personal and, and we're going to have to treat them delicately. I mean, that's the, the hardest part about this is I, I know progressives are going to be screaming, uh, rightfully so, at the, the folks who keep pulling away, right, from whether it's it's uh, uh, whether it's Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, or now Mark Kelly, who, who just sworn in. These are folks who've already shown that they're siding with big industries, big, uh, whether it's oil and gas or the defense industry, Raytheon, um, it's a concern because it's bad enough that we had a Republican Senate, but now uh, we have to treat them with kid gloves so that they don't, you know, especially with Manchin, go and change parties. Um, I want to, I just want to do one more story. If, do you have time? You're good? Yeah. Okay. I, there was so much news yesterday and I really didn't want to forget this because we, we love Sarah Nelson. Sarah Nelson is of course the head of the flight attendants union um, in America, which is part of CWA. Uh, she has called for Trump rioters to be banned from flights out of DC, uh, which brings up a, a lot of important points for many workers, both in flights in the Capitol building and in, in DC. They were placed under risk, at risk, uh, by the rioters, lack of safety for social distancing. And of course that should be prioritized. Keep in mind, you're watching those videos, a very, I mean, barely anybody was wearing a mask. I mean, there was this one interaction with a cop where the guy was chasing the cop. And of course, he's African-American. He was chasing him down the halls. He had a QAnon shirt on and, and he got in his face. And I could like see the saliva spewing on this cop who also had his mask down. I mean, I, I, I get it. Like you're in the middle of the heat of the moment. He, he was right. being chased. So I don't want to blame him for, for that. But um, it's between this and the Manufacturer uh, Association pushing back, are we reaching a new moment where where the li the lines are being redrawn? I mean, I, I truly believe that unions are going to lead the charge on everything, and they have to um, in this crisis. But what's your take on this? So, you know, uh, I think the proxy is a little dangerous. I like the intent in terms of uh, the flight attendants union. I mean, it's really, you're talking about anti-maskers who it's bigger than pro-Trump folks. You know, they're, they're folks in the African-American community who, you know, don't trust the vaccine and I don't begrudge them that. My job is to persuade them to believe in the vaccine. If that means I need to go on air and, and take the vaccine myself, I will. Um, uh, but I know the history, so I, I don't... Um, so anyone who do, anyone who compromises public health and the the safety of flight attendants and everyone else shouldn't be let on a plane. Look, like I said before, on the House floor, we couldn't even we couldn't even get the majority the Republican majority to mandate masks in a body in a room that is a super spreader venue where literally eleven elected officials have gotten COVID, right? And some of these folks are are older and have comorbidities. Didn't one just die also? Yes, my what? colleague, Mike Reese, well, he died of a brain aneurysm um, that may or may not be related to his COVID diagnosis from less than a month ago. So I'm not a physician. You know, um, you know, um, it's, it's an awful thing. He leaves um, 
a partner and, and three children, and that's you know awful. And he was supposed to be sworn in, and he died January second. So this has real consequences. But the politics of this is bigger than. So I think a lot of my Republican colleagues actually do believe in the coronavirus. They just don't have the integrity or courage to admit it because the wackadoos who are their base don't accept it and they don't have the convictions um, uh, to, to do the right thing. And that's what a real public servant is. The worst thing you could say to me is to call me a politician, right? Because I ran for office because I was tired of politicians. I'm a public servant and people say, oh, well, that's semantics and you're just using language for flourishes. No, 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 there's a big difference. The people we're seeing now who are like Lindsey Graham, who's talking about Biden won fair and square. He wasn't saying that um, weeks ago. These are folks who are political opportunists who are only doing it for their own good. Public servants do it for the public good, for the common good. And there's a difference. And there are public servants on um, who are Democrats and Republicans. Now, that doesn't mean that I agree with the Republican public servants, but I believe that they can be honorable people who see the world in a vastly different way than I do. And I got to work with them. So to my friends and colleagues and accomplices who are really upset about the Senate and what we need to do in pushing Biden to the left, and like, you know, I'm down for all of that stuff, but we have to be smart about how we do that because... It require, at the end of the day, you can't get past the math. Where is the math to allow us to get what we want? Um, and what is the timeline to do that? And what I, you know, I'm not an incrementalist by nature, um, but when you're talking about the legislative process, and we're talking about progressive folks demanding institutional changes, as we should, when we talk about how they're implemented institutionally, we have to understand the institution. And if you don't know the math for a particular institution, like it takes, a, it, it takes 102 votes to pass anything out of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. That is stuck in my mind. At the end of the day, if I don't have 102 votes, then I'm, you know, then I got more work to do. And that may require my folks from the grassroots to help me from the outside in and so forth. But I can't get past 102. I can't say, oh, that's not right. I got it. <laughs> that is the structure that we have to work within. So how do we influence it and over what time frame? Because we don't all get everything we want immediately. Listen, I'm the descendant of abolitionists. They spent decades, they spent generations fighting for the mass liberation of black folk. They didn't say, well, in what election cycle are we going to pull this off on? And how are we going to get this done in the next fiscal year? They didn't think like that. They said, as long as it takes, and we're not going to stop fighting. And because of that commitment and that resilience, we were able to go from a nation that held people in bondage to at least the prospect of freedom, the prospect, right? Because it, you know, it, it was a fragile freedom at best for my ancestors who were born into slavery, but who died free. We need to have that mentality and we have, and the abolitionists were very strategic. They had different ways of applying um, uh, their treasure in different areas. You had white abolitionists who were working with white politicians. You had black abolitionists who were working with enslaved folks on the inside. We had, so many people had different roles. And my grandmother, who I miss dearly, was a was an extraordinary, um, community organizers in Baltimore who fought against Nancy Pelosi's brother as mayor of Baltimore. They had 
a, a, a quite a rivalry. I was literally just going to ask you, did she did she know Nancy Pelosi's family? <laughs> Her family called my grandmother uh, Geronimo because she was badass in the in a good sense. Okay, the best sense of the word because I, I honor the spirit of Geronimo. So she said, everyone has a role. We may be in a role as progressives now in the minority, on the margins, but that doesn't mean we don't have value. We may not want to be in this role right now, but this role will evolve. We may become the majority. It may not happen as soon as we like, but we got to put in the work, which requires a level of literacy around the institutions we seek to change. And if you haven't done your homework, that's on you. No one's keeping you. Listen, there were laws that kept black folk from reading and writing, kept white people, punished white people for teaching people who were enslaved, people who were enslaved, not slaves, to read and write, right? We have the ability to acquire this knowledge, to mobilize without getting permission from anyone and do what needs to be done. So we cannot afford to be reductionist or simplistic and say, if they don't, listen, I'm, you know I'm all about reparations, right? But I'm not gonna say to the Speaker of the House, I want reparations right now, do this. I, I need to get the votes. I need support from my own Democrats. I need support from my own fellow black elected officials. I need to do the work before the demand can be made. And if you were to prematurely do it, it's, it am I right in saying, it stalls you for the long term if it fails. Obamacare, I mean, I I am very critical of what went down with Obamacare, but there is an argument to be made that I don't agree with, but keep it in mind that because because of let's just remind everybody he had the Senate in Congress. So that's why <laughs> I don't buy it. But there was an argument to be made that Obamacare was what could be achieved at that moment. And even with the sex success of Obamacare, which took a couple years right. to, to, uh, to write, to build the alliance, the, 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 there were alliances, right. Um, from the outside. And of course the votes, not to mention it took a couple of years to enact, not to mention the Republicans literally spent up until this point, I'm sure they're still going to go after Obamacare. I have no doubt, uh, even without control of the Senate it has been under attack for the last 10 years. And so if you don't get it right the first time, it can make really it so much harder, so much harder later. And what else did Obama achieve? That was his critical. He really distracted from potentially other things that could have been brought to the table, either by the administration or by the movements pressuring the administration, because they were constantly under attack when it came to Obamacare. That's right. That's absolutely right. What happens if I say, I want reparations right now, and they say, you know, we're feeling a lot of political pressure here. Let's do a little resolution. Let's do a little study. It's all bullshit. But, you know, on reparations, we'll study it. Well, guess what? They did a study in the Pennsylvania General Assembly that took on the death penalty. It was evaluating the death penalty in Pennsylvania. It took them seven years to produce a document that was 200 pages, and the conclusion was the death penalty is problematic. We knew that seven years ago. Mario Cuomo knew that in 1980. Come on, guys. <laughs> right. So my point is, if, you, if, if you're going to go, if you're going to sh- shoot the king, you better not miss, right? What happens if you get what you say you want and it's crap, you can't take a second bite of that apple, right? And so let's do it right. Let's do it right. 
You're doing it right, Rep Rab, if I do say so myself. Uh, I don't know about everybody else, but I, I'm, I really can't wait for Rep Rab to, to represent all of us, not just Pennsylvania. Here. I love the Pennsylvanians. <laughs> love Northwest Pennsylvania. They definitely uh, were a big part in, in electing Joe Biden, in blocking the fascists. So credit to your district, highest turnout, most well-organized, really turned out for this election. But um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna draft you for, but I feel like I need to draft you for something. I thought you liked me. He's like, stop talking. He's like, shut up. Thanks for sticking around over time. I'm gonna do some shout outs to folks. Uh, ooh, lots of Rep Rab love. Jake S sending his love. Rep Rab, we love you. Uh, Brothwaite Bone Spurs Cracker Bush the fourth. <laughs> you have to ask yourself who benefited from the events of yesterday. Wink, wink. Very true. Uh, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sends me a cup of coffee. Thank you very much. Sending the love. Stacey Abrams is awfully chummy with Bloomberg, says Observer. Uh, that's true, but she did do good work and she raised awareness. And, and I think it helped, hopefully, I mean, I'm not sure, um, other organizations who are doing the work on the ground. So, you know, the more that we know, uh, the better, the better, hopefully, the outcome was. Thank you, as always, to Professor Harvey Kay, who's in the live chat, chatted up, debating folks. We are so appreciative to you and always appreciative to MIDI doctors for docs, uh, for working the algorithms, which are, I don't have to, I'm going to say it every day. The algorithm is a little bit sexist, a little bit racist, because it was built by white men who might have had the right intentions, young white men. And when it was called out, the person who was in charge of addressing these algorithms was fired. So keep that in mind, a woman of color. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going all in at this point. Huge thanks to Bob and Billy and The Orb uh, for keeping our chat room troll free. We know there are a lot of trolls. That's another thing tech companies have to address. Get rid of these trolls. You know where they're coming from. This stuff has been reported on for the last six, seven years. Some of it's coming from foreign uh, troll farms. Some of them are domestic troll farms. This affects our discourse. If you don't think this affects our discourse... When accounts are being shut down, left and right, take a look at that video from yesterday. Thank you to JL for the love, great thing. He says, great thanks, and thank you for the stream. We are so appreciative to you. Uh, remember, solidarity is not a hashtag. And then I was just told to say, hashtag no me kids. <laughs> thank you to no me kids. Hashtag no me kids. But also, solidarity is not a hashtag. It is not a hashtag. So we got to live with solidarity. Be well. See you tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern. Much love to everybody. Thanks, Rep. Thank you.